Hello and welcome to the Veer Vulnerabilis Veer podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. And I'm Albert Imperato. Where we help men communicate and build empathy. All right, still in the uh, COVID pandemic, some people still in quarantine. But one thing I do got to say is last week, uh, our and I, you and I were in a blizzard. And this week we have beautiful weather outside. So I don't know about you, but I feel like in the last week, there was like a month or a year of life that happened. So man, I just got to say like so many things changed in the last little bit for me. What about for you? Anything, any big major moves there? Well, let's start with you. What happened this week? I mean, you and I didn't talk all that much this week. So like, what was it? Little things? Or I know. Yeah. It just seems like so much happened. Or... Yeah. You know, um, not, not any bad things at all. Just kind of like, you know, more information with potentially coming back to work, you know, what's going on with my wife. Um, my mother-in-law's flight got canceled again. So she's going to be here another month. So, you know, just so many things happened um, just right after the other. And I mean, good things can't really complain. Who uh, who doesn't want their mother-in-law to stay an extra month? That's like something from like a Honeymooners episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, Your mother's going to stay another month. Oh, no. <laughs> she's probably a very lovely woman. She probably hates me. She's never met me, but she probably hates me now. Oh, no. She's great. Um, I mean, she helps take care of our kids. So, I mean, that's like the biggest thing is, um, I mean, it's a blessing for us. Like every month we get to have her here and, you know, she helps cook and, you know, she's just a great person to be around. So, and she also will drink a beer with me from time to time. So, you oh, know, that's, that's cool. great. <laughs> so you had, you had a jam-packed week and and you are a parent with a young child. So there's a, there's a lot of jam-packed stuff that happens there. Um, you know, my, my uh, busyness and jam-packedness usually comes from my work. You know, I've got, I've been up at the house uh, for nine weeks here in the Hudson Valley, two hours north of New York City. And we've been here for nine weeks since all this uh, COVID stuff happened. And I had never been up at this house longer than four before. And uh, Brian had never been up here longer than a week. And suddenly we are up here for nine weeks. And to be perfectly honest, I feel like I've moved to, to the Hudson Valley full time. And now kind of my life has flipped. I did not expect that to happen. But um, I'm feeling very comfortable with that identity, being a country person now. But um, the reality is I still have a business and the business is in New York and I have loved ones and employees and a, uh, a lot of uh, responsibilities in New York City. So it's, you know, there are moments like this today. Today is stunning. I sat in the, you know, my favorite thing in the world is early in the morning to sit on the front porch and have my coffee and read my book. And you can't do it up here until it's warm. I mean, I mean, we had in the 30s in the mornings most of the day. Suddenly, this morning was 70 in the morning, and I was just the happiest person in the world. And for a couple of hours, I literally just didn't think of COVID, clients, bills, uh, how much payroll money we've got. It, it was gone. All I was doing was sitting and reading a book, and it completely recharged my batteries. I said I was going to go pluck dandelions all morning, and I wound up not doing that because we had a storm last night and there was broken trees and branches all over the place. I spent literally until, I mean, maybe five, six hours straight, just outdoors, just doing little putsy things. So it totally cleared my brain and you know, the world will be back and we'll have to confront it. And uh, you know, I, I'm talking to friends across the country and they're talking about our towns opening up a little bit. And you know, people are, you know, chiming away, hoping, and praying. Everybody wants to get back to normal, but also everybody kind of doesn't want 
the setback of the of you know the whole thing flaring up again and everybody you know having to go back in lockdown. So it's going to be, I think, a very uh, you know touch and go, tenuous time. But I think the weather is going to help a lot of people. The, the, I think the warm weather and the sunshine is going to be really good for people's uh, spirits through this this next phase that we're in. Yeah, I totally feel you on that, Albert. Once the uh, weather changed over here, you know, you could just feel the different energy and, you know, just kind of really get that going. So I'm glad you had a, a nice little moment on the porch there. Everyone needs to recharge their batteries and get going and, uh, you know, just really enjoy a moment from time to time. Yeah, I mean, this COVID thing has been like kind of in our face in every, it's like you turn on the television you flip through the news uh, sources and and you look on your phone. It's been the most all-consuming story of our lifetimes and probably will never be a bigger story. So it's hard to get away from. So powering off the device, being outside, hearing nature, that's really, really important. You need to, you really need to disconnect. You can, you can really short circuit if you, if you don't disconnect. Oh, well, I can totally get behind that message, Albert, you know me, (laughs) but yeah. Um, Man, really excited about our guest here today. Um, why don't you t- tell us a little bit about why we uh, invited Neil on? Well, Neil Barrett is uh, the proprietor of, of Standard & Strange, which is a store out in Oakland Bay Area. They also have a, a new uh, store in Santa Fe. Anyway, I've bought things from the store, and um, it's it's a great shop, great all the, the clothing that you and I love, Adam. But I, I didn't really have all that much back and forth with Neil. I think we exchanged one or two uh, text messages over the over the years, and, and they were about clothes. And then one morning, I was uh, popping through my feed, and I saw this uh, post from Neil uh, uh, in the Standard and Strange feed, and it was it was basically saying, "Hey, folks, the the period that we're in is is tough for our mental health." And um, I, you know, I was just so struck by the openness. He used the word vulnerability. So, of course, that caught my eye, given the the name of our show. Um, But um, it was just so, uh, it was so inspiring to see someone just come right out and just say, here's why I'm telling you this. And here, you know, there was a a link to a place for people to get, uh, get some help. And it was just like, it was it was very very inspiring to see that openness. So I immediately dropped him uh, a, a message and just said we'd love to have you on the show. And he got back to me really fast, which I love because some people just don't reply ever to anything. And uh, that was it. We had a little talk earlier this week and got to know each other a little bit. And I'm just thrilled to have him here today. Yeah, me too. I'm super excited about it. So I'm going to give him the official intro, and we'll go ahead and invite him on. Neil Barrett is a co-founder of Standard & Strange, a rugged menwear boutique in Oakland, California, and Santa Fe, New Mexico. He grew up in San Diego and worked in the radiation cleanup industry for 10 years before more or less accidentally starting Standard & Strange with his best friend, Jeremy Smith. His family raised him Mormon, but he left the church as a teenager and had a few struggles with mental health, and managing it has helped him grow into who he is today. All right, Neil, thank you so much for coming on today. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm exhausted, but I have energy. It's a strange feeling. <laughs> I don't think I've worked this hard in years, but uh, things are going well. Um, I'm just getting through it. 
So, so the working hard part, is that just the extra complications, the logistics of running a store during a pandemic? Is that, is that the primary driver of the, of the working? There's a bit of that. I'm having to spend a lot of time just coordinating logistics and, you know, there's a lot of, the news changes really quick about COVID and how it's going to affect, like, can we reopen? How can we reopen and when? You know, now that we've got two locations, it's kind of doubled the duty there. But it's just this last week, we've, we're really busy on the packages coming in and the packages going out, which is good, but it's, we're just, just, just kind of scrambling to keep up with it all. Has, has the, uh, the online uh, business that you've done uh, risen dramatically from what it was, like kind of balancing out what you're, you've lost in terms of people coming in the store or not, not really? It's up and down. When the pandemic first happened, I think we got our business, online business went up quite a bit. I think people were just excited to show us some support and, you know, really felt for us. And we're like, you know what, I was thinking about buying that thing a little bit later, but I'll do it now. I'll help those guys out. Um, but it's been up and down since then. Overall, we are down from our normal trajectory, but not in a significant or meaningful way that like would affect like, do we have to close? Yeah, well, in this environment, just being steady or a bit down versus like a dramatic uh, downfall is just in, in a, a great accomplishment. So kudos to you. I mean, I'm, I'm in the music business and my whole business is completely on its back. It's like an upside down turtle. It ain't, it ain't moving nowhere for a while. But anyway, um, if you don't mind, just because always when we have these talks, we want to make sure that we lead with the, the most important thing in a way, because we, we, we don't want to, for, to leave out like the time to talk about the most important thing. But I want to go back to that post uh, that you made and why it resonated so much with me. Um, and what, you know, Adam also jumped right in on it. We were both, both, uh, you know, it was something that we were, we were both excited to talk about, but you do this post and you basically say, um, you know, mental health is very important, especially right now. There's, there's a, a stigma to getting help for mental situation, uh, uh, mental uh, uh, problems and, and challenges. And instead of putting it in the ca- and couching it in the in the distant sort of he- we here at Standard and Strange, you say it that it personally was an issue that that meant something to you. And I just thought that is the bravest thing a human being can do. Like you didn't hide behind the brand of the store. You told you said this is personal to me. So I just want to know um, how did you do that. Well, first of all, thank you. I'm really glad that that post inspired you. I mean, it. a lot of what I do with this store is I put, you know, my heart, soul, blood, sweat, and tears in it. And you don't get to really show that in, in too many ways. Um, I, think, I think a lot of it was just like now during the pandemic, now's the time to shine and show, you, show people who you really are. You know, uh, people they want to have an even more meaningful connection with other people right now, especially now that we're all largely behind screens. Right. And, you know, the store, it's not just a place where you buy stuff to not be naked. Right. Like if that's your goal in buying clothing, we're not a good option. (laughs) You know, there's plenty of other better places for you to go there. 
And so what, you know, what, what I think really makes us special is the sense of community that, that we fostered and the connections that we make, not just with our clients, but with our brands and other shops that we know. It's a really tight-knit industry. And so, like, during the pandemic, we've been hiding behind, you know, the sort of brand thing less. And, and we've sent a lot of emails to our, to our email list where it's like, you know what, here's what, we're, here's what we are doing. Or here's what I'm doing. Like we pledged to donate two percent of our revenue uh, to charity for the rest of the year. Um, we created an oh shit fund for the staff after a couple people had their catalytic converters stolen. Ooh. And because I just don't believe in the this like debt spiral where you go into debt to fix the car so that you can go to work so you can make money to pay off the debt to fix the car to go to work. You know what I mean? I feel you on that. <laughs> so it's basically like we've, like I said, this is an opportunity to really step it up and just make it less about selling things and more about who we are and what our values are. And part of that's just, I need to get this out. It gives me a sense of meaning and a sense of purpose too. And it's sort of a creative challenge in a way as a business owner. But it's also just, it's what I feel is the right thing to do. It's, it's like who I am. And I kind of, there's no large mastermind like strategy behind it where I'm tracking all this shit with a spreadsheet or some sort of calendar. It's just, you know, Jeremy and I, Jeremy set up the BetterHelp partnership that we did, which was instead of us taking a commission for people to sign up, they would give people a free month. And we thought that was the best thing the best thing to do. Jeremy is your business partner. We should probably say that. Yeah, he's my business partner. He's a co-founder with me. And so, you know, I wanted to sort of promote that on Instagram in a different way than the email that we sent. And I was just, you know what? Let's get real. Like I'll show people some vulnerability and some openness and hopefully that'll inspire them, you know, to open up to themselves and seek help, help if they need it. Well, I think it did, it definitely did the job, I think. Um, I mean, from a couple of people that I talked to and I, um, I was very grateful for it because I do think that I agree with you that the pandemic uh, time is a time to step up and, and, and really confront it fully and say, hey, our ideas about ourselves are being challenged in the most fundamental way. Uh, nothing more so than our values. That's actually what's being tested right now more than any other. Sure, our healthcare system is being tested. Um, our logistical aspects of our, of our lives are, are being tested. Um, but, but it's really our values because the values are the things that determine our, our actual behavior. If you value people, then you, know, you make a decision. You, you, uh, you, take, you think about those people and those those. Uh, decisions are impacted by by your care for those people. I think what I really am moved by with this also is the idea of caring and and uh, and taking action without that sort of sense of like the personal here is why you're doing it. Uh, the the personal it's 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 so easy to take action when you um, you know, have a, a, a very, very um, individual reason why you need to take action. But here you were, uh, the, the, you were really reaching out to help others with uh, your own experience. And I just, th I just thought 
that there's something in there. There's a secret. There's a reason why some people take that type of approach and some people don't. Um, you know, when you and I talked a couple of uh, days ago, we had a little pre-interview pre, uh, moment. You, you told me a little bit about, you know, your experience growing up in a Mormon family and that you had uh, a bit of a confrontation with your dad at, uh, about an issue that was kind of big in our uh, in, in your, uh, in, in California civic life at the, at that time. Could you take us back a little bit about growing up Mormon, telling us a little bit about the values and, and, and how, how might that have influenced your, your, you know, your, your vulnerability and sharing some of the things that you just shared with us? Yeah. So I grew up Mormon. Uh, my family was Mormon and, you know, it's just, it's kind of all I knew is religion wise growing up. Um, but when I was when I was a teenager around maybe it was 14, 15, this was like the late 90s, early 2000s in California, there was a proposition introduced that people could vote on that was would basically ban gay marriage. And the Mormon church was secretly financing a lot of this as well. And you know, I, I took a really strong moral stand against that. I really disagreed with it. And, you know, I had always had a complicated relationship with church. I never really felt like I fit in. Um, and it just, there was just something about it didn't click with me. And I wasn't really sure why for a long time. And then I started to do a lot more research into the history of the Mormon church. And I found a few things that I like really, really disagreed with. that really alarmed me. Um, there was some racist shit that they were doing in the 80s. Uh, where they basically a <clears throat> for whatever reason they decided that since Cain killed his brother Abel and then he was stricken with a mark of dark skin somehow all black people like uh, took on this burden and thus they could not hold any position of power in the church and I mean the Mormon church it's pretty damn white <laughs> uh pdw and, pretty damn white yeah pretty it's pretty damn white and so but during the 80s byu had a very good uh byu that's the mormon university in utah Brigham Young. they had a they had a pretty rocking college basketball team and some other teams in the league learned about this rule and they started to refuse to play byu and it, it got into the news cycle and then the, the IRS said, huh, if you guys are discriminating against people based on a protected class, you're not a tax-exempt organization. We're going to need back taxes for the last, you know, 120-odd years or however long it was. And Mormons pay 10% of their gross income as tithing. And so that's a lot of money in taxes. And then very quickly, the leader of the Mormon church, the prophet, who... Uh, has a direct line to God received a revelation that uh, this rule could be stricken down. It was, no, there was going to be a change. Black people could, they could have a position of power in the church. And then their uh, IRS problem just disappeared. And uh, little 10 year old Neil was like, Hmm, I'm going to call some bullshit on that. <laughs> God bless the bullshit. Like if it's already on at 10 years old, you're doing something right. Yeah. <laughs> And I don't mean to really like just rag on the Mormon church. I've, 
my whole larger point is that I have a complicated relationship with it because I, it did bring me a lot of very good things. Um, I feel that it gave me a really good moral compass about what's right and wrong, what's doing. Mormons, they have a strong, strong values of charity and helping others. And I feel that like really, in, that was really instilled in me. So anyways, back to the uh, anti-gay marriage bill. Um, I also took issue with this and I was pretty vocal about it as a, you know, a snot-nosed teenager. And my parents had bri bribed me into going to seminary, which for Mormons is an hour of church before school, which means you got to get up at like 5 a.m. to go have church and then you go to school. Did they bribe you with cash? What was the bribe? <laughs> they bought me a graphics card for my computer and I was so foolish. I didn't do the math to figure out what the hourly pay was. <laughs> Part of the seminary, they started doing this, you know, anti-gay marriage proposition stuff and they handed us pamphlets and stuff. And I could, I just got like really pissed off, stormed out, um, and then took a bunch of the pamphlets and went on this, the front steps of the church and I just lit them on fire. Very teenager. In protest. <laughs> uh, which a lot of people got very upset and also very worried about what else was they going to set on fire. Um, but I got banned from seminary, so <laughs> I didn't have to go anywhere. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. Were your parents mortified? It was yet another difficult thing that teenager Neil has done. I had a pretty rocky teenage teenage years. High school was really tough for me. Um, I got through it somehow. So this gay anti-gay marriage uh, initiative, this created, you know, uh, from what I remember from our conversation the other day, this created quite a, a, a great deal of tension between you and your dad. Yeah. So when I was around 14 or 15, I decided this religion isn't for me. Uh, and I don't want to go to church. And my parents would literally drag me to church, drag me to the car. And so that just made me rebel and resist more. And I, I mean, it got to the point where like I locked myself in the crawl space to not go to church. And then it worked. I didn't have to go to church that day. And then when my parents came back, uh, I stayed in the crawl space for like a week. And I got really depressed. Not nonstop for a week. Were you coming out for little pee pee breaks or like what? Yeah, I did that. Yeah, I did that. Cause like my, my parents would go to work during the day and I'd just be there. I didn't go to school. And like, I think this was me trying to have power over a situation. How old are you at this point? You're like 15 or maybe 15. I was like 14, 15. Like, you know, like very early on, like I saw that this, this, this method worked. It was good in the short term, but I can't live in a crawl space for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you were doing classic, uh, you know, like real protests. This was social yeah. protest on yeah. your own home. I mean, it is California. Do you, I mean, California, we're, we're hoping and expecting you guys to do that for us. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, and so, but this also, you know, I wasn't just like protesting. I was going through some mental health struggles myself. This made me feel really depressed and like just anxious and, and worried about all kinds of things. And um, it, it started this, this very negative spiral down and I fell into a really deep depression and, you know, my parents, they, 
they took me to a therapist. I went on the antidepressants and like I, I worked through it. Um, they caught me smoking weed a couple times. What do you think was at the heart of it? Was it realizing that there was this divide between you and your parents and you in this, this religion? And it was it like realizing that, hey, I might not be able to, to bridge this gap. Was, was that what was causing the depression? I think that's, I think, I think, yeah, I think you hit it on the head there because it was, well, part of it was, you know, my dad and I would get into these epic arguments where he would just, we would both try to pull power cards over each other in order to, to, you know, get them to do what we wanted them to do. And that just created a lot of like anger and tension and conflict. And, you know, I had a stable home life before this. And then when I decided to rebel, all of a sudden, my relationship with my dad was non-existent. And if it did exist, it was, it was anger. And you had um, siblings? I have older siblings who had all moved out of the house. So you were left alone in this drama, that, yeah. this very intense drama. And, and obvious, I mean, I, I can totally relate to that because I, I went through that when my parents divorced and I was the 15-year-old kid trying to you know, navigate adult problems. I mean, suddenly it was like, oh my God, my parents are having these major marital issues and I'm going to have to figure it out. And I hate to say it, I had to take sides. And that was, that was my moment like yours um, of realizing I could not reconcile their problem. It was, it was a, that was a very powerful. So that, that's kind of why I grabbed at that as maybe what triggered this depression in you. So, so take us, take us from that point on, how did, where, how did you go from this kid who's in a crawl space uh, and, 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 you know, your parents are, you know, uh, very concerned about you going to therapy. What, where did you, how did you break to the next place that you needed to go? Uh, I think the big crux of it is it is that after I got out of the crawl space, I didn't have to go to church. My parents like recognized that th- this was a choice that that I was allowed to make for myself of like what what my spirituality was and how that was expressed, uh, which is really rare in with the other Mormon families and friends I knew growing up. I had a friend who didn't want to go on his mission, you know, after, after high school, you go for two years and go and proselytize and spread the word of God. And his parents told him, if you don't go on your mission, we're kicking you out of the family. Wow. So he went on his mission. Did your parents get, get pushed back from the church? Did they, did they assume that they were going to push you to make that decision or how does that work? The church's stance is that you are going to have struggles with your faith and you're really going to question it at many periods during your life. But the assumptions that you're going to come back to the flock and the culture I grew up, the Mormon culture I grew up in is, is you're either a hundred percent in or you are a hundred percent out. And if you slipped up and sort of the moral codes you were supposed to abide by, no drinking, no smoking, et cetera. Um, that meant there was something wrong with you. And people were often ostracized for that too. And I don't think like, you know, the people like my friends that were my age, I don't think they really knew how 
to describe or really understand like quite what I was going through. Cause you can play it as like Neil's having mental health problems or, you know, Neil doesn't want to go to church. He's like rebelling, you know, he's a heathen. Um, it, it, it was complex. It was complicated. There, there were both of those threads were running through it. Were, mo- were uh, most of your friends at that time, more other Mormon kids or did you most have- of them? Most, most of, of them, them were. Wow. So that's a kind of a, cl- a closed system there that's a very well that has very powerful centrifugal forces keeping people together but at the same time they're pent up uh, and possibly can result in an explosion i mean molecules are like that right they either fuse together or they dramatically burst apart so was there a dramatic bursting apart or what how did this i mean it seemed like clearly there was a there was a, a crisis coming here some somewhere i would say the locking myself in the crawl space was the height of the crisis and then, you know, I followed a, a trajectory where things would improve and then I would regress or, or they would get worse and so on. But I think my parents really giving me that sort of freedom to choose which religion and spirituality, I, you know, that I would seek, that, that kind of allowed me to move to the next step because that was, that was the big wall that I had to break through. It was like, I just had decided like, this is not for me. And it, it was an, it was a community that I also just didn't feel I, I never really fit in. Well, it's very very similar to the, the situation of a of a kid coming out to his parents and the parents saying, "Okay, I, I didn't really want you to be gay, but I'm it's it's who you are, so you go and be gay." Um, so I mean, first of all, you know, your, your your parents, kudos to them for not falling into a cliche and yeah. and and saying we don't you know go, goodbye you're banished from our life so, so they deserve some credit there obviously kudos to you for i think ha- needing to be a strong teenager is, is a tricky one to begin with uh did, was going off to college i mean you went to school in chicago i, I think you told me yes yes was, was physically getting to chicago and away from uh you know like Going out on your own was that an, an, the next big, break, uh, you know, turning point for you? It was. Um, this really s- sort of uh, this helped me really build a, a strong independent streak where I felt the need that I needed to be self reliant, um, and I, I wanted once I got a taste of that sort of agency of adulthood. That's all I wanted. And I was, I really just wanted to figure out what do I got to do to get out of the house and like move out. So I, I did this home study program when I graduated high school early. Um, and so, yeah, moving out um, and moving to Chicago for school, it was, it was a really good experience. It was really tough. Uh, I think I went to college too early. I wasn't mature enough to really know who I was and what I wanted out of college. It was just, it was this thing I had just been drilled into me my whole life. Well, you go to high school and then when you're done, you go to college and you figure out what you're going to do. And then you go, you go get a job. The idea of a gap year, I, I didn't even know what that was, you know, and I really wish I would have waited until I was about 23, 24, I think to go to college. I just wasn't prepared for it. I was a terrible student. I couldn't manage my time. I couldn't study. I, and that, caused me to struggle with depression because I felt guilty about, you know, oh, fuck, I can't even, I can't even hack college. You know, what does that say about me? Uh, but I ended up dropping out of, 
art school. So I went to Columbia College in Chicago. And then and then I started working in the radiation business because it was just easy money. And that was the, the business that your dad was in, right? Yeah, my dad was in the business. It started, my uncle was a nuclear engineer. And then his teenage son was killed in a, in a car accident. And he never really got over it. And he he just he was an alcoholic after that. That's how we, that's how he dealt with it. And he was a really brilliant engineer. And this is in the in the eighties. And he knew how a nuclear power plant worked better than most people. What they would do is they they, they would hire him to work at a power plant, and he was sort of like this insurance of knowledge in case something like some shit hit the fan. Uh, but he was like just so incompetent because he was drunk all the time that his job was to go and like figure out people's lunch orders and then go pick them up. But he couldn't even do that very well. But they still kept him on because there were a few instances where they had some issue with 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 inside the plant and they called Uncle Boone and Uncle Boone's like, oh, yeah, here's what you got to do. <laughs> it broke through like he could summon the expert like trapped beneath the alcoholic haze. Yeah, he was good in short bursts. So this was now then you had returned. This is in the Bay Area. Is that what got you into the Bay Area? Yeah, that's what got me into the Bay Area, working a job at the uh, Hunters Point shipyard. There was a big, super fun cleanup site. The later, uh, wow, I don't even know how to describe how that job went. You said there was like, it came to a very uh, kind of... A- it, it, it later became mired in controversy and fraud. And two of my bosses went to prison. <laughs> <laughs> So it was an eventful, eventful experience. Yeah, it was. It was. And that's when you went off to Berlin for a couple of years, right? Yeah. So, so after that, I went off to, uh, during the financial crisis. Uh, I actually quit my job. I, I was having a really tough time. Like it was, it was a very toxic work environment. I mean, I'm working with mostly former military type A macho guys, and then it's. It's a construction site. We're, do, we're doing a lot of demolition, but then there's a radiation component that just slows everything down. And I was working for this big multinational construction engineering firm that was so unethical. And I really hated the company that I worked for. There were a few things about the project I was on and the people that I was on that I liked, but the toxic environment just became too much for me to bear. And one day I just, I kind of snapped and I realized like, I'm not in a good mental place right now. The, the, the emotions and the feelings I'm having, I've never really experienced before. Like I became just angry with rage. I saw red. I thought that was just a thing, a cliche that people said that you see red when you, when you feel rage. No, it's, it's true. And it just really took me aback. Like I at least had the ability to recognize what was going on wasn't normal and wasn't healthy and I didn't indulge it. And so I just said, I need to take the day off. And I took the day off and I went home and I got on my bicycle and I just rode the shit out of my bicycle for the rest of the day. And the next day, I, uh, it had been quite a few years since I thought a therapist and the very next day I was like, I need to see a therapist over this. And after a few sessions with a therapist, she was just like, I understand the problem in your life. It's your job. 
It's good to get a nice clear answer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I knew it was, but it was like, it would, this was like the longest job I've ever had. I'd had it for three years. I'd been given a lot of responsibility and really grown within the company. It gave me a sense of identity and a sense of purpose, but at the same time, it was so toxic to me. And the money was really good. And I was like, well, what am I going to do if I don't have all this like easy money coming in? Like, you know, I don't want to have to like, you know, budget for food. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I was like 23. Uh, so, but I realized that this is what needed to happen. And so I quit my job, but this was, um, this was like March of 2009. Like the financial crisis was in full swing. Everyone thought the world was going to end. And I quit my job with a cake. I, I called the local uh, erotic cake shop. It was just a few blocks away from where I lived. I said, hey, can you guys do a sheet cake? But can you, can you just make it like a resignation letter? And they're like, sure, we can do it. That is totally brilliant, dude. <laughs> yeah, I'm very curious about this. <laughs> well, yeah, so so I, I worked, part of what I did is I worked in the radiation, the, like we had an on-site laboratory where we analyzed samples. And the lab crew, that was like sort of the cream of the crop. And it was a pretty pretty cushy job. And so we would always like bring in food and snacks, like for everyone, you know, just a community snack table. And I was like, you know what, let's step this up. Let's do Cake Friday. Like, and I would go and buy a really nice cake. And we just have cake on Friday. It was great. And I just said to my boss, when I was like, you know what? I'm going to quit with the cake one day. So anyways, I, I get this resignation cake. I give it to my boss. Uh, a coworker takes a photo of me with it. And, uh, and I already arranged to go home early for the day. I was going to go out of town to go see my brother down in San Diego. And... Uh, yeah, I drop the cake off. I bounce and I'm at the airport and my boss just like calls me. I was like, hey, I'll call him on Monday. Calls me five times in a row. I was like, okay, I got to answer this. It's like, you need to get back here right now. Like the project manager found out that you quit and he's fucking pissed. I was like, what's he pissed about? He's like, your computers, your company computer's gone. I said, well, I put in my, I locked it in my truck. You know, I just signed the things saying I was personally financially responsible for it if something happened to it. And I don't really trust the people I work with locked in my truck. They ended up breaking into my truck to get my laptop out. Wow. Um, this is starting to sound like an HBO show. Dude. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, I've, I've actually lost track of the better point of the story. Somehow I, got, I just got carried away is that so coworker took a photo of me with a cake and I posted it on Flickr, remember that place? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Throwback. And um, a friend of mine wrote for the Boing Boing Blong, and she saw it. And Boing Boing posted it. Like, you know, like, oh, this is, you know, like, in this financial crisis, like, a guy quits his job. <laughs> like, who would do that? And then it, and then it like, broke national press. Really? Or international. It broke international press. <laughs> And like the headline was like, man quits job with cake. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag resignation yeah. cake. I love yeah, it. Resignation I cake. I think that's a future, a future product line from standard mm -hmm. and strange. Yeah. Um, and then I'll later, I'll, I'll tell you another good, there's another, uh, another addendum to the cake story. Dude, we're going to need three episodes with you. 
So, I mean, so, <laughs> so <laughs> but you, I mean, if you don't mind, I mean, yeah. honestly, I'm not kidding. We're going to have you back for multiple episodes, but you, oh, happy. Come, I'm happy to come, do that. You come back, you go to Berlin. Yes. You, okay. So, I, I, I moved to Berlin with my, my girlfriend, uh, who's from Sweden. And we had wanted to just, I visited Berlin, loved it, wanted to move there. And we kind of had this opportunity to go. We just said, fuck it. Like, but she wants to be closer to her family. Berlin's an amazing city. So we moved. Well, I'm going to just uh, say clearly, I mean, we, you've been doing these. I, I urge all of the listeners to go to the Standard and Strange uh, uh, Instagram feed and see all the lockdown uh, shots. Uh, these very, very creative, funny storytelling that you're doing, um, showing off the clothes, but doing it with a really f amazing sense of humor and command of uh, Photoshop. Uh, but the point I want to make is just that, like, clearly with the resignation cake, you have a, a, a bit of a flair for expressing yourself, which is, which is really, I mean, that's super cool. Thank um, you. You know, uh, it's, you know, people are afraid to express themselves. You're not only not afraid, you're, you're like going to do it with style. Um, so tell us a little bit about how that influenced the environment of Standard and Strange. I mean, first of all, tell us where'd you come up with that name? I, we know, I know you, you sort of said you accidentally started the store. If you could, if you could tell us that in a fairly compact way, cause I know it's another one of those stores, uh, mm -hmm. stories we could do a whole episode on. Yeah. So how we started the store was my best friend, Jeremy and I had met each other through the cycling community in the Bay area. And we ended up, we were, we're nerds. So we ended up deciding that we were unhappy with all the cycling jerseys available on the market. And we had talked about like, what would be the perfect Jersey? You know, it's the one, the zipper in the front pockets in the back. So we just said, we figured out what we wanted to do. And I said, fuck it. Like how hard could it be to make a cycling Jersey? Three years later, uh, after going about it, probably in the hardest way possible to make a garment where we start, we started at the yarn level to develop a textile for it. Um, we made these jerseys. Uh, we called it Cedar Cycling. And they were fantastic. They were really good. Um, and we had this fledgling cycling jersey business like where Jeremy cashed out his 401k. I cashed out most of my life savings to start it. And we didn't really know what we were doing. We just assumed that people, like we spent all of our money on production. And we just assumed that people would recognize the inherent superiority of our jersey and just buy it. So it was going okay. I was running it out of my neighbor's garage uh, and getting tired of doing that. So we started to look for um, a, like a showroom or office space. And uh, we found a spot in this little alley uh, in the neighborhood that we lived in. We live in, in Oakland uh, where there was a really cool, like old school style barbershop there with just like two chairs. It was tiny. And in this alleyway, there was just a bunch of storage units and then this barber shop. So we talked to the barbers and got in touch with the landlord. And one of those spaces was going to become available. So we told her what we wanted to do. And she didn't understand the concept of showroom or office. Uh, and she just said, look, it's 200 square feet. It's 400 bucks a month. If you do retail, I'll rent it to you. We're like, okay, retail, huh? Well, a cycling clothing 
retail store is a terrible idea. We at least know that because <laughs> we didn't, we only had jerseys. We didn't have, you know, the shorts or the socks or like anything else. And then we're like, okay, what do we do? Cause this was the point where like, it was pretty clear that Cedar was, it was going to fail in about six months. We were going to run out of money. We were just undercapitalized. We couldn't, we, we weren't selling things enough to finance more production of, of, you know, what we needed to do. So we had gotten to know a bunch of the people making uh, garments in the Bay area uh, just because we were, we were sort of in the industry and like the guys at Taylor Stitch and Tellison and Jeremy was just like, you know what, why don't we do a store of the clothes that we buy? There's nothing like we always have to go to San Francisco to buy it. Uh, there's nothing in Oakland. Let's give it a shot. Like it's 400 bucks a month. So we like took our last $6,000 and somehow opened a store with this. Like we rented tools from the tool lending library across the street. And Jeremy and I built all the fixtures ourselves rather poorly. All of the inventory was like borrowed or on consignment from friends. And we were just like, all right, I guess we're running a retail store now. And I was convinced this was a terrible idea. It was going to tank the business and like we were going to just go under, you know. And uh, but we we just we we just sort of had the gumption and the initiative to figure it out and made it work and like learned along the way. And uh, a lot of people helped us along the way, too. Um, and it just sort of grew into what it is today, which is where we have two locations. I travel around the world meeting with all these suppliers and uh, all these other stores. And we do great collaborations with brands. We stock brands. I like dreamed of being able to afford to buy before I started this store, <laughs> you know, and now you get all those free samples, yeah. right? I don't really get that. We don't really get that many free samples. <laughs> Cause I'm from the record. I'm from the record industry. So it's easy to give out freebies. It's like, Oh, it's 1499 for that CD. So that's why I've got walls and walls of CDs. But, but I mean, you see, you obviously thrived and, and from our end, I can't speak for Adam, but um, you know, we look at the stores and each one has its own personality. And we had to assume a store called standard and strange are like, are you the standard one or the strange one? complicated we're both <laughs> <laughs> i assume that's where it came from right i mean it's no, no no it actually it actually came from a book um do any of you guys know who jane jacobs is or was i like a city planner genius yeah so she was like a city planner urban planner uh academic heavyweight she was a heavyweight she's the one that blocked robert moses from building that freeway through lower manhattan yes Anyway, she had a book called The Death and Life of Great American Cities. And it's a book where she's, she just talks about like what makes a city work. And there was one passage where she's talking about how a neighborhood works. And, you know, what makes a neighborhood like a really thriving place for people to live in. And she's describing that there's this, you know, you need a mix of standard businesses and strange businesses. The standards, your delis, your grocery store, et cetera. But your standard, your strange businesses are the underground art galleries or music venues or like basically the weird experimental shit, right? But the, there is an interesting relationship is when a standard business like 
closed or moved and that space became available, the strange business would move it. And then the same thing would happen. That cycle would continue when they, when they left. And so, uh, and she talked about like the need for a neighborhood to have this balance. And, you know, our, our first store in that little alleyway, those who originally were municipal horse stables for when uh, horses were, you know, transportation or no, no, originally for when horses were cops what it is and so we kind of we felt that like there was there was some layers of meaning and relevance within this about like the repurposing of our space our physical space uh the neighborhood that we were in oakland was like really sort of like starting to i mean gentrify is not the best word for it but it's an easy word to go to it was changing a lot for good and bad and also you know it just rolls off the tongue good Right, it's got a good flow to it, and you can describe style with it. So I I didn't know the um the the backstory at all. So that's just brilliant, and I it, I could very much relate to that as a a Manhattan kid and watching the neighborhoods go from standard to strange. And you know, I, that's my that's what I implore people to be. I implore the uh, you know I just think everybody needs to be a little standard and a little strange. We need to sort of the 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 more diverse we are as individuals and as communities ecologically, environmentally, we become stronger creatures. And I, to go full circle, you know, you, you mentioned that the, this time of COVID has presented a very powerful moment for you and as a manager, as a business owner, as a, as a team that you have there. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what's happened? I mean, the, 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 the humor coming out in the, in the lockdown shots reveals something's going on, but tell us a little bit more about what's going on. Well, I mean, when the pandemic first hit, you know, it, it was like I was hit with a truck of just uh, like of decisions I got to make in, with my business and like what's going to happen, ranging from just like, is are we are we going to turn into like Soviet Russia? Um, is everyone going to die? Like, what's like, is the economy just going to turn off? Like, what's going to happen? What do we do? How do we navigate this? Like. And like, am I going to get sick? Was I sick? Because I had, in in late January, I had very similar symptoms to it. So it's it's been this time of so much uncertainty. But early on, I realized that we're living in history as it's being sort of created. And there's going to be a before the pandemic and an after and during and after the pandemic. Like that's how our reality is going to be split. And that what we like the decisions we make during the pandemic are going to be more important than ever, probably the most important that we'll make in our lives. And so that really, that that created a lot of pressure on me, you know, as, as a business owner and the boss and I just, you know, I realized like we've been a scrappy business from the start. You got to be scrappy. And I was like, okay, we can, I think we can, we can get through this. Uh, It's going to be really difficult. Uh, It's, it's going to suck. There's going to be periods where it's going to be really, really shitty. But as a team and as a, and as a company and as a, as a person, 
I've gone through some pretty heavy shit before and I've gone through on the other side and that gave me some confidence that at least, you know, worst case scenario, we have to close the business or whatever it is. Like I'm going to get through it as a, as a person and as a human on the other end of it, assuming, you know, I don't die, but if I die, then there's worse, worse problems. So I took that as like my, my role is really to sort of be an emotional leader for the team and help keep everyone together and really like true leadership, not just manager boss, but, but contextualize what this pandemic in a greater sense and give people a feeling of purpose and giving them confidence and positivity. Um, and, and it's, it's really hard because this is, this is our first pandemic. And there's so much that we still have to learn about it. Um, and information changes daily and it's fucking confusing as hell. And so like Jeremy, Jeremy and I, like we take a, a long-term perspective to our business where we feel that like relationships are probably the, they are, relationships are the most important part of our business from us to our suppliers, to with my team, to with our clients. And that's the, sort of the glue that holds everything together at the end of the day. And nurturing and really building and creating like meaningful, real relationships, um, it's, it's what keeps us going. It's what keeps us in business. It would, it's what makes us special. And it's what keeps us going and motivates us too. And so we've been really, really supportive of the team, both as a company and just sort of as managers. Um, like I mentioned, the Oh Shit Fund, you know, uh, one of my one of my staff's catalytic converters was stolen during the pandemic. And he's like, well, I've been having to drive to work because the public transit's closed. And now my car doesn't work and it's going to be $2,000 to fix it. You know, and it's just it's. So there's ways that we can just really just be supportive of the team and like and really show them like who we are. I mean. And it's, it's just been, it's been really wonderful. Um, everyone's really grown just in the last two months. Uh, we're all so much closer together. And I'm just really proud of everyone. They've just stepped it the fuck up. And that, like, it, it's, just, it's like this positive feedback loop um, where the more positivity you feed into, into sort of this situation, the more that comes back. Like I always describe being a manager is like your team. It's, it's like, it's like having a, like a, a fish tank. Right. And if sort of the balance, like whatever you throw into that, like, you know, positive and negative, all your managers go through what you throw in that fish tank, that's going to affect the balance of like the water in that ecosystem. And it's really hard to keep it balanced and it requires constant maintenance, but um, you got to know when something's toxic and when to cut it out and kill it, get rid of it. Maybe kill it's the wrong phrase there, but. <laughs> it's okay. You will not uh, be right? heat mail for that one, dude. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and so I'm just really like, we're all really, throwing as much positivity into it as we can. And that's not to say that it's all positive. There's certainly been struggles and challenges that everyone's experienced on the team. Um, but I, 
but taking that long-term perspective is is that you know okay if someone just needs to go home early because today's too much for them um some work won't get done that's okay what's more important is letting them go home is going to is it's going to make help them become a healthier person and it'll make them be a better person. And it's just providing that support. Um, we've also uh, been paying all of our staff like full payroll since the lockdown started, regardless of how much they work. Um, because again, with that long-term perspective, like it, like without, without my team, I'm, I'm fucked. I can't do it all myself. It's impossible. And everyone brings something different to the business and it, they really make it special. They, they put their own spin on it. Like everyone's got their own very individual style too, which you can see on, on Instagram. Okay. So, so, so like all these sort of decisions that we're making as a business, it, it's about, it's about our, our values. And a really wise friend told me a few years ago that a business is the expression of the values of its owners. And if you look closely enough at nearly any action that business takes, you can see those values in action. And that has just like, just slowly rang more and more true. I've really felt the weight of how true that is over the years. And like right now that bell is just being rang every day, loud and clear. And so it's it's about it's about expressing our values and our and our ethics and a big part of why Jeremy and I started Standard and Strange is that it was a reaction against all the like unethical vulture capitalist shitty companies we had worked for like I had spent years working in this radiation cleanup business largely super toxic work environments where like I just saw how the company operated, how it treated its its suppliers, how it treated its its staff, and it just just dis- disgusted me. You know, where they really truly put profits over people, and that's not at all how I want to run my business. Because finally, like I can choose how to do it. I don't have a boss overriding me where I just have to sort of suck it up and be like, okay, I disagree with this, but it's not my call. And that really gives me like a, a, I've, I've had a lot of personal growth since I started this store and I always felt really, really guilty and, and negative about like dropping out of college, you know, cause you're like having the college degree, that was, you know, sort of a signifier of how successful of a person you, you were that, 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 that was, that idea was just drilled into me. And, but like the, the store is, it's been my college. I've learned so much more than I would ever have learned at university, getting a degree and whatever. And now it's my livelihood. I mean, it took it took me five years to finally have the guts to 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 quit my job and like go full time at the store. And I scared. I was scared shitless. The stakes were really high, but I went for it and it worked. So, wow. I'm yeah. going to jump in it with a wow. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I'm going to let Adam run with the wow. Yeah, I mean, I've spent most of this podcast just like gripping, just like, oh my God, like how does this happen? So, Neil, I just want to say like, thank you for all that, you know, sharing and just all that information you gave us. And 
what really, really resounded with me is the, you know, emotional leadership that you talked about and really just, you know, having the guts to do it and really just putting yourself out there and being vulnerable. I mean, your staff must truly appreciate you and, you know, who else wouldn't because you're putting your heart and soul on the line and you're just giving that out. And in regards to that fish tank, it's like you keep maintaining it to the best of your ability. And when you put all that, you know, great stuff in there, when you give and give and give and give, well, eventually it's going to give back to you. And I think you've really, really created that environment and that ecosystem to have that, you know, giving loop, you know, between your suppliers, your clients, you know, your team, you know, that's all together as one. And like, you know, every business book you read, like that's, that's the optimum story. So, um, you know, kudos to you because that's, that's one hell of an accomplishment. And another thing is going off of that college degree and kind of like that, you know, the, the tick or, you know, whatever you want to call it that just says like, Hey, I've achieved this. I've achieved that. I've achieved this. Well, it's like, you know, now and now in today's society, I think that's kind of becoming less and less, um, as to like kind of who you are and, who you are, I think, is really just shown by your actions. And no matter, you, you don't have to have, you know, a, a title or a degree on your wall to, to be a good person, to be a vulnerable person, and to be, you know, someone who gives back. So I think that, you know, your, your own college through starting a business is a great way to showcase to, you know, our listeners and to whoever, like, you can really do things on your own. But like you said, you need a team, you need a good relationship with everyone else to make it all happen. And putting people first is definitely going to help that out. Could you think of like any time where you like were really like tested and just saying like, hey, like I have to make um, a decision, yes or no, on this to like really say like, you know, I have to stand my ground as a moral person to make it happen. Yeah, uh, there is. Well, first uh, thank you for saying all that, Adam. Like, it, it, no, it <laughs> really, it really does mean a lot to me to have you like recognize that. Um, cause a lot, a, a lot of this has just been like, I'm just doing what I kind of think is right. Somehow. Sometimes it feels like I'm just going in blind where I'm just stubborn. And it's like, this is the right thing to do. And this is what I'm going to do. Damn it. Yeah. Um, as far as the time when, when that was really tested, there was, yeah. So it was a few years ago. Um, one of my staff was working part-time for one of the brands that we, that we stocked on, on the wholesale end. What ended up happening is we, there was basically an HR issue between her job with this brand. Uh, the brand was the aggressor the, or the person with this brand was, was the aggressor. And there were heavy whiffs of racism and sexism involved. And, it really, it really hit my team member hard uh, where this, there, there, there was, there was like a, a, a confrontation that happened and this brought up a lot of uh, deep seated uh, just, there were, there were like psychological triggers for them that this like really like they, they picked just the right ones, the right buttons to press. Yeah. And when, when I was told about it, my first reaction was I was fucking furious when I learned, you know, the, the details of the, of the confrontation, 
I was so pissed off uh, for for so many reasons. And I talked, so I, you know, talked with my contact at the brand that I worked with and I tried to work it out with them. And he basically like, he stuck, he took the company side, the company man's role. And I, and this was a brand that we were selling really well. It was, it, it was a good source of income for the business. And when I wasn't able to work out the issue with the brand, uh, I just, Jeremy and I had probably, Jeremy and I had a maybe 30 second com- conversation where I was like, hey, I want to drop this brand. And Jeremy said, I do too. Let's do it. Like, and it was because I didn't want this brand's products in my shop because of what they had done. Because they showed me their true morals and their true ethics. Um, It also created this giant like mess I had to clean up just sort of internally with my staff, which I was happy to do happy to do. Um, and I mean, it was just wrong. It just pissed me off. And I didn't want their products in my store. I didn't want to look at their products to be reminded of this constantly. And there was no way I could ask my staff to sell it to strangers after the shit they pulled. So, um, so we ended up like just dropping our, we, we, we stopped selling the brand. We sent back our inventory and uh, that was that. How did your team react to it? That decision? We all sort of had to band together to support the staff involved, right? Like it, it was a pretty heavy situation for them. You know, the, everyone on the team was, was in agreement, agreement with me with what I wanted to do. Uh, a few of them told me that they would be okay if we kept the brand. They wouldn't like it, but they would sort of accept it and slog through it. And I, I was just like, I feel so strongly. I do not want this. I Like I'm done. With, I have to sever this relationship. It's not working. Like we are incompatible on an ethical level. And if this business is an expression of my own values and ethics and it's incompatible, then it's not going to work. It's just there's a very, very hard boundary there. It, it, it gave us this team cohesion that I had always dreamed of having as, as a manager, but wasn't really quite sure how to get there, how to like manage my way into this. Because uh, managing people was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done. And then it was just like, one day it fell into my lap, this 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 decision I had to make of what to do, how do I handle this? I didn't spend much time in making the decision. I spent a lot of time deliberating and trying to understand that confrontation and all of the other, the the details uh, and really what, you know, but anyways, yeah, this this decision just fell into my lap one day and Jeremy and I, we, it was an easy choice because we, we had already had like this moral compass. We had this like this sort of like a uh, uh, framework on what to do, how to navigate it. And we gained so much more respect uh, from our staff. Um, and it brought everyone so much closer together because we really had to band together and give a lot of emotional support to each other. 
And after that, it, everything was just, it was different. Like, you could just feel it, the cohesion. I have to, I have to say, I, I really think that's a, that's a really powerful story. I could certainly relate to it as a small businessman, that, that classic, hey, the client misbehaved. We have to drop the client because we have to protect the employee. And, and if you don't do that, um, you know, you're going to, there's going to be all kinds of implications for, for the future of your business. But I think, um, you know, you say it, this, this dropped into your lap, so to speak, the, the, the bottom line is you are training as a human being and, and really knowing deeply by the, by the caring that you, that you've done by the, the, the examples that you came, uh, that happened throughout your life that gave you that compass that gave you the ability to make a hard decision at a time, I mean, really, that's really when the hard decisions matter is when there's something on the line. And I think this is what we're confronting now as a, a culture. It's one thing to believe in state as a, as a cult- country that you believe in certain values. But what happens when the shit hits the fan and the shit is hitting the fan everywhere and we are being called upon to take a stand and and. Uh, putting people first, putting ourselves first, you know, are we going to lock up, you know, fill the, the, the moat with alligators and, uh, you know, keep, keep people away? Or are we going to open our pantry and give food to our neighbors? Um, what, what kind of culture are we? This is where we're facing. So I'm just going to uh, hope and I believe that your example will, It'll help your employees. It'll help your community, your neighborhood, the people who shop at your store, hopefully some of the people hearing this podcast. But I do believe that the collective energy of what you're talking about, if we help each other and, and, and slap each other on the back and give support and energy to each other, that we can use this moment to transform our society into a place where our, where our actual actions are a little closer to our stated ideals. Because for a country that loves to talk about its exceptionalism and about its incredible moral leadership around the world, we, we've fallen rather short. I know you're laughing across the screen there, but the bottom line is, you know, it's really going to be individual p- people making important decisions during this pandemic that are going to ultimately lead us out of this situation and towards the new society that we're in. And I suspect we're always going to be a society where these forces are one against the other, where we're going to have the people who are seeing others as their neighbors and the people to care about, and they're, uh, they're going to do everything in their power to keep that as, as the focus of their lives. And then there's going to be people looking to shit on other people and, and you, vulture capitalism, you name, whatever phrase you want to use. But the bottom line is we, we can have a functioning, healthful, uh, abundant society without doing a lot of shitty things. So we want to, you know, just celebrate and thank you uh, for what you're doing. Uh, and we hope people um, support your store. Uh, you might want to mention the name again of the, of the organization that in that post that we started this, the better, is it better life? It was better help. Better help is the name of the organization. And, and I urge people to go to your post, uh, go to better help and and see what you've offering there because uh, you said that word in in that post the the idea of stigma there should be no stigma against anything that we feel as human beings that's causing us suffering uh, that's the whole point that's why I love doing this podcast so much as I feel to a certain degree we can all 
just by speaking the words, we've already taken the, the boldest action that we can. And that's what you did in that post. And you know, I had always heard you were a cool dude. Now I get other people weren't kidding and we get why you're, you're, you're a really good dude. Thank you. That really means a lot, Albert. Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm blown away by all the support we've received during the pandemic, just as a store, not just people buying stuff, but just like the real, the real stuff, like people sending us just nice messages or like, we're rooting for you, or I love what you guys do. It keeps us going. It gives us like, it reminds us, it takes us out of this headspace of like, we're in pandemic crisis mode and kind of like, there's a little blip like, right, that's who we are. That's what we're doing. That's why we're here. I just think those are beautiful words. Adam, do you want to add any little cherry to that beautiful Sunday? Yeah, you know, um, I just got to say thank you, Neil. It's been a pleasure talking to you and getting to know you. And like you said, we are in the middle of history right now. And how we act, you know, our beliefs and values are really going to take us and really shine as whenever we come post pandemic mode. So it's been great hearing your story. Um, I'm so excited to have you on again. You have some wonderful stories. I mean, truly, I was just sitting there just like, oh, how is this going to happen? You know, so it's been great. Yeah, I'll just say again, we want to have you back, Neil. Maybe not next week because we'll we'll have to recover, but we'll ha- we'll definitely want to have you back. Oh, absolutely. Got to have you back. Oh, let's do it. Let's do it. Yes, please. I know there's some more stories in there that are just wonderful. I got a few. I got a few. <laughs> no, I'd love to come back. This is this has been great. Well, this has been another episode of the Veer Vulnerabilis Veer podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. I'm Albert Imperato. And I'm Neil Barrett. Thank you for listening.